We are the richest country in the history of the world, and we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. Yet we have the worst health statistics of all the 30 richest countries in the world. The maternal mortality rate for all U.S. women is about 33 per 100,000 live births. For black women, it is about 70. The maternal mortality rate in the European countries averages eight. The Scandinavian countries, two. The U.S. ranks 42nd in life expectancy among the countries of the world, with Cubans having a higher life expectancy. No matter how you look at it, our healthcare system stinks. It is a fraud. We need the real McCoy, the real McCoy, the real McCoy. What is wrong with our healthcare system that we are performing so poorly? The answer is simple. The purpose of our healthcare system is about making profit for health insurance companies, big hospital chains, pharmaceutical corporations, and increasingly private equity firms, not for the health and well-being of our people. No matter how you look at it, our healthcare system stinks. It is a fraud. We need the real McCoy. The real McCoy, the real McCoy, the real McCoy. Welcome to the fourth episode of The Real McCoy in Healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Claire Cohen, an African-American child psychiatrist who is a member of National Single Payer, Physicians for a National Health Program, and also of the Western PA Coalition for Single Payer Healthcare. Today, we are going to have the first of our episodes about labor and single-payer health care. Our guest will be Ed Gristar, a member of National Single-Payer and Western PA Coalition for Single-Payer Health Care. And Ed, I'll let you say a little bit more about yourself um, in terms of your bio. Um, maybe you okay, can say uh, a couple more words about your bio, about yourself. Okay, uh, thank you, Claire. Uh, it's... Uh... It's a pleasure to be with you and, and an opportunity to talk about labor. Uh, I myself am a, a retired uh, union representative. My last job was with the nurses union in, in Pennsylvania for about six years prior to that. I worked for 25 or 26 years with another labor union, uh, the SEIU, where I negotiated many contracts in Western Pennsylvania and actually helped organize people in Louisville, Kentucky, and the state uh, of, of New York, and also served as the president of the Butler Labor Council, which is a little bit north of Pittsburgh for 15 years. I ran for office in 1984. I was the chair of the, and I'm going to say it, I'm happy to see Kucinich dropped uh, RFK, but I was uh, Dennis Kucinich's uh, chairperson in Pennsylvania, and also Jesse Jackson, labor coordinator in Western PA, uh, so I, I have a number of years experience and uh, it's a pleasure to try to engage because uh, we do need a stronger labor movement. Okay, so I'm inviting you, the audience, to get more information about both National Single Payer and the Western PA Coalition by going to the links in the show notes of this podcast. Well, welcome, Ed. It seems only natural to me that labor would be a major supporter of single payer health care. And across the world, much of labor has been. Yet in the United States today, most unions are not. Yes. And we have this virtually unique way of covering healthcare called employer-based healthcare coverage. 
So why don't we start by putting things in context with you giving the history of how the United States came to have employer-based health care coverage and the roles unions have played in fighting for and against employer-based versus single-payer health care over the decades. Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, I don't want to dwell too much on the uh, the, the early historical uh, development, but essentially around in the 1930s, there began, prior to that, people just paid for their health insurance out of pocket. And in the 1930s, there was a beginning of the Blue Cross and Blue Shields, where they became nonprofits and covered like one hospital in Texas covered the employees there. And gradually through the war years in the 1940s, the IRS through the federal government made the provision of benefits uh, not taxable. And therefore, when that occurred, there was a great need for uh, more workers during the war so the employers gradually gave more benefits because they became untaxable uh, expenses. That kind of drove the benefits through the employer. And then after the war, and we can get into this later because I think this is the crux of, of our problem. After the war, there was a tremendous strike wave. And uh, the, when, the, uh, when the Social Security Act was passed, it did not include health care. And as the war war ended and there was this huge strike wave, which was like unprecedented in the U.S., there were many, many unions that fought for, talked about United Auto Workers, about having a national health care plan. But it was opposed, of course, by the Chamber of Commerce, American Hospital Association, the AMA. And for various political reasons, it was essentially scuttled. And the establishment of benefits through employers uh, became the main provision. Now, you could ask yourself, and people have to consider this, why, why would there be no arch, overarching class issues that were projected at that particular time that would unite the people, not only in labor unions, but other people who didn't have a union for a national health care plan. And there's no secret <clears throat> that as the strike wave went on, we had a rise of McCarthyism, anti-communism. Many of the unions who were most fight the most militant fighters for these kinds of benefits were, were ostracized not only from the labor movement, but were persecuted and the energy for a national health program, like you said, that, that exists in many other countries uh, kind of went away. But as we know, the issue of the provision of private health care is essentially tied to a market-based economy that the U.S. is the titular head in the world. So the benefits that, that were provided for many people in, in this uh, upsurge of labor and throughout the 1950s were actually acceptable to people until we got into, again, the next phase came in the 1960s when we had the, the lack of coverage for senior citizens in 1965. Through a bitter fight, we, we established uh, Medicare and later Medicaid. 
And everybody knows that, or if you don't know it, the provision of Medicare was established. It was a huge civil rights victory because it desegregated the hospitals in the South. But it, again, because the balance of power was not sufficient. When I say the balance of power, labor unions in the 1960s were fighting for Social Security and for Medicare. And they helped establish Medicare. In fact, George Meany, the president of AFL-CIO, was there when the Johnsons signed the Social or the Medicare Act. However, as we know, and this is again leading leading us forward, the provision of Medicare left a gap. It, let, it did not provide all benefits for people. And why why was that? Well, again, it was a political compromise, a balance of power. Remember, the AMA, the Hospital Association, the Chamber of Commerce, those people were all viciously against even Medicare. So when it was established, there was a, a crack that only Medicare only provided something like 80% of the benefits. So people had to continue to purchase a secondary supplemental plan. Then as that moved forward, the hospital prices continued to go up and and. The coverages, the coverages for people uh, were acceptable to people. But again, when you think when you think about what is necessary for people uh, to have a decent health care coverage, uh, there was no no vision coverage, no dental coverage, no long term care coverage in that that is negotiated by the labor unions in their contracts. They have to negotiate those things separately if they really can. So we came to a crisis beginning in the 70s and into the 80s where healthcare costs continue to go up. There are more treatments, there are more prescriptions, there are coverages that were available, and the cost never went down. And, and labor started to begin to recognize that this was a kind of a doomsday scenario, that they would be negotiating their contracts and literally taking money out of the pockets of the rank and file workers to simply provide benefits in the employer. When I started negotiating contracts in the mid 1970s, that's what they would say. They would say, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you a lot better healthcare coverage, but Ed, you know, the money's got to come from somewhere. So gradually as those costs went up, it became a, 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 a non-solvable uh, situation for the labor unions in that they continually had to fight to maintain their wages and benefits and other conditions of employment and simultaneously negotiating employer coverage. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why, why wouldn't the employers uh, abscond and leave this and say, hey, if we can find a better way of doing this and eliminate the profits of the insurance companies, why wouldn't we join together with you as unions and we'll, we'll really petition the government to have single payer or we'll have a national health service that will save everybody money, which was the reality. Except as you know, people are enamored with their corporate identity. And too often in, in the United States today, which is the, again, the beginning of the crux of the problem, rather than unions fighting for benefits that pertain to everybody and fight for everybody, like raising the minimum wage. I would have, we would have workers at that particular time when we would say we should fight for raising the minimum wage and we should fight for these legislative issues 
And what ended up happening was uh, they they would say, no, Ed, because we can't do that, because if you take and give benefits to everybody, they won't join the union. And what, what does that mean? It's kind of a weak tea unionism. It's a unionism that focuses on protecting your employer. You identify with your employer. So therefore, if your employer gives you a benefit plan, even though it's it's not as good as it, it should be, you identify with their provision of the benefits and you try to protect them. It's a losing battle. So, so we came up to the uh, the last thing is we'll come up to the ACA, which is in 2008. Mm-hmm. Unions were waking up. And I think that, that what we have today is in 2008, 2010, around the ACA, we had 600 labor unions that had endorsed H.R. 676, which was John Conyers single payer bill, 600. And at the time of the ACA being passed, John Conyers bill had more endorsements from Congress than any other piece of legislation, yet it was simply just discarded. And one of the reasons it was discarded was because there wasn't enough of a integral fight by labor by civil rights groups, by the liberal Democrats, by the grassroots to pressure the Congress to do the right thing. They thought that if they just passed a resolution, that somehow they're going to to listen to what the resolution says. And instead, they discarded it. In fact, you know, we all know they arrested doctors in uh, Max Baucus, arrested the uh, physicians. So and but the catch is that the top leaders of the AFL-CIO were complicit in the passage of the ACA. What does the ACA do? It codifies the private delivery of health care. And of course, you call it Affordable Care Act. Of course, it never stopped the rising prices. And it leads us into today where you had, uh, not today, but historically you had the Bernie Sanders raising this as an issue. And essentially, he was just building on the the crisis as a crisis grew. The crisis is continually growing. And today, we are left not only with a crisis, but we are left pretty much leaderless. And and we need to kind of reevaluate where labor is headed, what direction is headed in, and how can we change this? Yeah. So that's a very interesting history of uh, a synopsis is a history, and I think it's a good one. Um, you kind of got to some of what I wanted to ask. So one of the things was today, as you said, we see there are some unions that um, are that do uh, support single payer health care, the UE, the Nurses United. But even those, um, I don't know if they figured out how to really how to really fight for this and push the labor movement. But on the other hand, we see a lot of unions. Uh, that are still really um, not supporting single payer and pushing for um, uh, employer health care. We see the whole situation up in New York with the with the seniors um, fighting against their un- unions, wanting to put everybody in Medicare Advantage. We see a lot of unions putting people in Medicare Advantage, uh, seniors, their retirees. And then we see, I know when Bernie Sanders back in um, in the last campaign for presidency 
the rank and file uh, workers in Nevada were for single payer, but their leaders, their bosses were for uh, were against were actually against single payer. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit more about how things like business unionism, how the unions uh, connect strong connection with the Democratic Party rather than being independent. What are uh, maybe other factors that um, are that cause unions not to support single payer and um, um, are barriers to their supporting you single payer that you see? Well, I think one of the one of the fundamental barriers is again the ideological background of the leaders of the union movement and for those of you who don't know it the labor movement in the united states is probably the most conservative labor movement in the world meaning that it doesn't activate its rank and file it's it's con it's just deluded with the idea that legalisms are somehow going to provide us with the basis of, of a real movement. So what do I mean by that? I mean by instead of mobilizing and educating the rank and file on why single payer is good and having a vigorous debate as to the crisis of for-profit health care and how we could, you know, why why did we establish Medicare in the first place? Think Think that through. Medicare was established in the first place simply because private businesses didn't make enough money to provide insurance. So the government stepped in and provided Medicare. It is, it is a, it, 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 how can you describe unions today who instead of fighting for national health care, a nonprofit national health care system, which has support of the public, which has support, which has the capability of being drawn into a massive independent movement to push for the right thing. Rather than do that, they're literally selling Medicare Advantage plans, which is an abomination of the whole history of what labor is about. And I guess the question becomes, what should rank and file unionists do? Until you recognize, until you're cognizant of this particular dilemma, you can't move forward. You can't figure out a way out of this. When you could ask yourself, well, what happened to the 600 union endorsements for single payer? Why did they all go away? Well, they all went away because it wasn't founded in any uh, uh, rooted in the rank and file. It wasn't they didn't do any education. All they did was pass a resolution and say this is what we're for. But they never put any life into it. And I think what I'm saying is that's why we need a different kind of unionism. So the real question is, what kind of unions do workers need today? When you take the people in New York City, for those of you who don't know it, I think you just said it. And I actually have in my own personal family, my mom and I, my, my dad was a steel worker and my, my mom got retiree benefits from, from the uh, union. When my father passed away, my mom still had a Medicare supplement plan. But when the company was bought, when the company was bought by another company, they discarded the retirees. And when they discarded the retirees, unfortunately, the union is not legally obligated to bargain for the retirees. So they just discarded them. The workers, just like in New York City, 
the workers were my mom, they had to go hire their own attorney and fight to keep their medical benefits maintained. And that's what's happening in New York City. The retirees are losing their Medigap coverage. It's being privatized, turned over to Medicare Advantage. Keep in mind, 1965, the reason you have Medicare is because of it was against privatization. Yet the unions today are, because they don't have an ideological focus on fighting for retirees and fighting for pretty much anything, they take the easy way out. And what's the easy way out? Well, they listen to the mayor of New York City who said, hey, we'll give your rank and file workers a little bit more money if you just simply throw away their retiree benefits. And again, what's the answer? Well, the answer is, of course, that you have to have a foundational argument that we need to have a national system because this whole business is never going to end. All right, my other example is when we had the 50th anniversary of uh, Medicare in Pittsburgh. We had a demonstration. We had about 50, 60 people in in uh, in front of the uh, big healthcare center, UPMC. We asked the United Steelworkers who were on strike. Literally, they were on strike in a steel mill 10 miles away from, from Pittsburgh. We said, why don't you join us? It's the 50th anniversary of Medicare labor. They refused to join the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Medicare. And guess what? Their main issue was the company destroying their health care. Now, why would a union do that? Because they don't possess the political understanding of what's necessary. And all, all we can say is that that's why that what we need is a conscious movement inside of labor in, that is going to be able to articulate a vision that is popular. And when I, when we say an independent vision, we just mean the fact that these, these issues that the public supports and that rank and file support, we have to organize around them. We really do. And if, you know, if we let it out to the Democrats or the Republicans or many of the top leaders, it's going to go nowhere. Okay. So there's a couple of points that you've raised that I'd like to uh, ask you about. So the first is, what is your vision um, Ed, what is your vision of a single payer health care program that would be the real McCoy in the United States? A program, and you've sort of alluded, started to allude to a strategy to build that in a labor movement, but could you expand upon a strategy to help build support for that vision in the current labor movement? Well, I think what we need the vision, the vision would be to begin uh, with <laughs> the vision would be to educate and promote a honest debate and discussion inside of labor, mm -hmm. like where, where you would just have town hall meetings inside unions and inside everywhere and say, why is why do we need a national movement for nonprofit health care? Why is it? And then begin to lay the educational foundation for that. And by doing so, you not only bring more energy into the movement, but you solidify it. And then when we talk about building an independent movement, I give you a couple of, uh, of examples. One was 10 years ago or so, I had a hospital in, in central Pennsylvania. They were going to outsource all of the labs. And so I represented the, 
the uh, the nurses and the professionals in this hospital. And they said, you know what, Ed? They called us in. It was in the middle of our contract. They said, we have 180,000 lab tests, but guess what we're going to do? We're going to outsource all of them to, to various private entities. And if you want to negotiate over the effect of this, but we're done. We're This is a done deal. We've decided to do this. And there was another union in the hospital, and there were doctors in the hospital. The workers, we had a meeting with the workers, and they said, hey, Ed, the other union has already conceded. They're never going to stop this. They don't want to fight this. And all the doctors think this is a great deal. So what are we going to do? We're only, we're only 150, 200 nurses and some uh, lab technicians, even though the lab technicians did all the tests. And, and I said it to you, and I said to the workers, I say, what is your choice here? If you give in, you're guaranteed to lose. But if you make a fight, you might win. We might change the dynamics. We might do. And so the workers literally at the union meeting were crying. They were crying. They said, well, we have no choice. So what we did is we devised a plan and we went out into the community. We had petitions. We had rallies. They went to the Walmarts, the Kmarts and whatever. And guess what? Full page ad in the paper. There was a full page ad in the paper from the doctors and the other union attacking our union saying that you're ruining the health care you're you're you should accept this deal and what i'm saying is that was a clear reflection of an ideological divide between which way a fighting union would go and which way a collaborative labor management union would go and the end result was management was so angry because we filed unfair labor practices we tied them all up we had more rallies and whatever that they were forced to back off of their plan. They were forced to back off of the plan. And that, and my, my argument is that if you had a simultaneous, and again, this is where it comes into the need for class-based unionism. If you had simultaneous struggles that would be going on around the country, which you do right now, you know, you have you have the auto workers going on strike. You had the you had the nurses or the healthcare workers at Kaiser going on strike. You had the actors going on strike. You had the writers going on strike. You got the UAW. What you had, if you had a real movement, is they would be uniting and saying, "We're all in this together." What are our common denominators? And you could create a a a a a, a different strain of thinking in the country. And my other examples, I've used this many times before. I know these are the only things, not the only things, but I can tell you it's like in 1999, Bush was going to privatize Social Security. I'm the president of a small labor council in Western Pennsylvania. And I went to our rank and file and I said, well, we can't be for the privatization of Social Security. It's a disaster. And they said, yeah, hey, this is a good thing. Well, not a good thing, but it's a good. What do you want to do about it? And we said, well, why don't we hold a town hall meeting? And so we organized a town hall meeting. Again, the catch here is labor has the resources. We had a little bit of money. Labor has the power, has the influence, has the resources to actually move things. They can move society if they do it in the right way. We had in this small town, a butler. 200-some people came to our town hall meeting on Social Security. So could you imagine... And the president or the secretary treasurer of the AFL-CIO, he later became the president, Richard Trumpka, he came to the rally 
and it got it got some coverage. It got some coverage. But what I'm saying is, you can't just fight on one employer, one one union, one one geographic basis. You need to have a labor movement that's going to project that our class needs to mobilize people because that's where the power is. And if you look at what's happening around the world when they destroy unions, the first thing that they do is they destroy class-based bargaining. They go and they say, you should only negotiate a contract for an individual company, an individual enterprise. And why do they do that? That's because they, they the man knows where the power is. And, and they know that tiny little unions only negotiating one contract with one employer, they really have no power. That, that yeah, is it better than having no union? Well, of course it is. But it is doesn't meet the needs of the day. Yeah. So so one strategy is is building um, um, more of a ideology of class-based unionism. Um, and I hear that. Um, but a lot of, let's face it, in the United States, a lot of union leaders um, are um, don't have that ideology. But you and I have run, a run across rank and file people that do. So what can rank and file people do to push for that class consciousness? And I know that there can be some effect. Uh, part of the reason why the um, auto workers is having this historic strike and maybe looks like they may have some success is that they managed to get democracy in their union so that the rank and file could vote for a leader they wanted um, who was more progressive. But what do you say to someone that's in a union um, where the leadership isn't that progressive, who who believes in uh, single payer health care, Medicare, improved Medicare for all, wants to see their union fight for that? What 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 advice do you have for rank and file people to in terms of helping to push that fight in their own unions? Yeah, I, I think that's that's the that's the nub of the matter today that what what can we do to help? grow a, a a more fighting and I actually essentially it's not so much fighting in terms of class issues and class struggle it's it's essentially to talk to workers you say what is the most effective way for you to benefit from your union how can your union become more effective and what 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 you have what we need is we need to have a some beginning of a, a organized presence of people who are thinking in this direction so that the rank and file people can begin to talk and strategize and debate about ideas and, and alternative directions. And we that's what we need. We need to create a kind of a national labor group or, or an identity group that people can look to and begin to say, okay, if I'm, if I'm, uh, you know, what, what can I do? Because democracy in and of itself is, is necessary. But when we talk about democracy in this fashion, it's not so much the form of democracy, meaning that you can, most unions, let's say you could elect your own leaders. Some you can't, you're, you're correct. But even the ones that can elect their own leaders, just because you have an election, but if the people don't express an opinion, 
that like, for instance, what I'm talking about, they don't go in a different ideological, different political direction. You're just voting for Tweedledee and Tweedledum. So the real democracy is, as I started out, was getting and implementing a plan that looks to the rank and file for power, not to lawyers, not to Democratic Party politicians, because that takes the energy. It saps the energy from the union. And I think that if we can, if there are people that are interested in in moving their union forward, which I do believe today, we are in a period of a quasi upsurge. But I wouldn't confuse the period today with what is possible, what is needed, because just because people are upsurge without leadership, without a clear direction, it's dissipated, it falls away. And that's why we need to be to be, 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 be organized. And how do you get organized? Well, if we have if we could have rank and file caucuses in these unions that would that would exhibit four or five points that of struggle uh, and begin to explain it to people because there it isn't as if what we're talking about is just rhetorical uh, posturing. All these things are based on literal facts and daily life experiences that you can turn around. But most people, I hate to say it, in the unions, uh, doing this kind of work that I'm talking about is hard work. It's not easy. You have to be willing to have your facts together, have your arguments, and be willing to take it to people. And, and when I say take it to people, you have to be willing to engage people, Claire, and, and talk to them and explain it to them. And so if you have a union, what I found is the rank and file is generally open. They know they're getting a raw deal in most places. And unfortunately, if you look at most unions, they're incapable of mobilizing their rank and file, which is the key element of success is how can we build a real movement? So it sounds like maybe someone listening to this podcast today who is a rank and file member of a union who really, be, who they themselves or a group of them in their union uh, want to fight for Medicare for all, but they're feeling stymied by their leadership, could uh, educate themselves, go to our links. We have uh, mm-hmm. in the podcast to get more information about the history and about why uh, single-payer health care or, or improved Medicare for all, and then form a caucus and educate yourself right. in that caucus. It sounds like that's one concrete thing that people in unions who yes. the leadership is not for single payer could do form a caucus and, and, and educate your right. caucus and try to recruit more members. So we're nearing the, the end now. But of- could I just, could I just add a couple of little, just one more thing. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, when I was the president of the labor council, we had a newsletter, which we established. It went out to like 20,000 okay. members of, right. of the, of the labor council. And again, I look back at this and I, and I went through some of my notes and I have one of my articles that was from like 1999. And it, and it was, it says, some thoughts on working class consciousness. And then what, what does it mean? So I had seven or eight little points that says, thinking and acting like a worker is still elementary, but an indispensable element in today's modern world. But what practically does it mean? And it's the first thing it says, it means understanding that is it more important to build solidarity among workers in different unions than building an identity with your boss. 
It means understanding that the progress for workers in areas like eight-hour workday, overtime, Social Security, Medicare, racism were won in struggle by working people against corporations and the rich. It means understanding that uniting workers across their occupations, their races, their sexes is important to building a labor movement. It means understanding that our real power is rooted in our ability to generate members' involvement, educate them, and, and mass pressure. It means understanding that the issues and concerns of working people are the same concerns of the vast majority of citizens. It means understanding that real leaderships come from a set of styles and principles that simply don't change with the seasons or with the styles of the day. Our movement is bigger than any one of us, and people will join it if you lead by example. It is, it's in, and the last is it means understanding it's important to stand up and be proud to be a union member, defend the labor movement, because without unions, life would be immeasurably worse. Now, so, all I'm saying is that you don't see mm -hmm. that kind of ideology. That, that was written by uh, 20 years ago. You don't see this kind of thinking promoted in unions today because what you say is oh our employer the, the it's it's the japanese workers or the chinese workers or it's all confusing people so it sounds like you're saying uh another idea besides forming a caucus is forming a dissident newsletter i it makes me think <laughs> of mike stout and how in the steel workers he they formed their own newsletter uh which became very popular with the rank and file which mm -hmm. was kind of this dissident newsletter which before you knew it, the rank and file uh, liked that newsletter be better than the official newsletter. Right. The, ca the, caucus, the caucus could have its own newsletter. The caucus could have right point. The caucus could raise issues. And it's essentially just trying to make your union more effective and more yeah. educated and more involved. Because mm -hmm. the normal thing would be Claire Cohen has a grievance. She has a problem. So what does Ed Gristar do in, in a business union? Ed Gristar says, Claire, file this legal document, and then when we'll take it to to the, the 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 company, and it takes forever, and that's the nature of the business. Instead, what what a rank and file based approach might be? Well, how many other workers have a similar problem as Claire? Let's get all of them to sign on to the grievance. Let's all go to management with ten people when we had a grievance meeting. It's it's doing things in a different way. In a different way means getting the members to understand the importance of them collectively working together on the job. And that's where the real power is. So I'd like to end with uh, pinning you down once again to ask you, what's your vision of Medicare for All? We've talked about how to get there, some strategies, and I hope people listening will take these strategies to heart, especially people who are in locals where they're frustrated that, that this issue isn't being addressed, single payer. but um. When you say single payer, what what is your vision of what that means? Um, uh, is it is it um, just go just copying Medicare, or is it or or is it something beyond Medicare, better than Medicare? What are you talking about for people to fight for? Well, I you know to get right to the to the point, I do think that based upon what is occurring in this country now, which is very depressing as far as the privatization of almost everything, especially healthcare, and the literal acquiescence and complicity of both political parties to it. That it, it the question needs to be discussed. Well, if you had single payer, 
and half of the hospitals are run by for-profit entities. Basically, the government is paying uh, the for-profit entities to make profit. So I would say, first of all, we need to outlaw the existence of for-profit health care. So that would be the first point. And unfortunately, in many of the single-payer bills, well, not many, but the current one, uh, it, it's weak. It's kind of weak on that issue, and Bernie Sanders doesn't do that. So if we're going to educate people on why we need single-payer, we have to explain to them why the for-profit healthcare system is ineffective, it doesn't meet the needs of the day. So that's so that's what I would say is our beginning point. And Single-payer, again, as you know, Claire, is just a payment mechanism. It doesn't deal with uh, the whole uh, issue of occupational safety and health, of racism. It doesn't deal with most of the uh, uh, endemic, systemic problems that we have in our system. But fighting for single-payer at least gives us the opportunity to tell people you know, through the COVID thing, what 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 in what in my estimation happened was that we essentially went backwards in instead of articulating a vision of how public health care would help people, we people are demonizing people who are for public health care. They're pointing out saying, oh, they're just tools of the insurance industry or whatever. And that has to kind of end. We we have to have a vision of of a public health care system that is truly based on the needs of the people, not on the pharma companies, not on for-profit doctors, not on hospitals who are just empires. And I think my point is all of these things that I'm saying through my experience have the public support. It's not as if we're Don Quixote's in the wind. Everything that I'm saying today has broad public support. What it lacks is a political dimension. It lacks a real life organizing. And that's kind of like what we're trying to do, national single payer. And if, we, and if we can revitalize our labor movements, remember, the biggest progress in labor came through fighting through the 1930s. And then, then I, I tell people, I worked in the steel mill in 1970. Nixon signed OSHA. You couldn't get OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Today, if you dream for it, half of the Democrats would never support OSHA. In fact, they haven't improved it for all these years. And so my point is, if Nixon passed OSHA, how did he get it? It wasn't through divine intervention. It was because there was a movement. There was there was bubbling going on, civil rights movement, labor movement in the around 60. And that's kind of like what really is the vision. And don't you think for one second that the corporate powers don't understand exactly what I'm talking about. They're there 24/7. How to stop this? How to how to uh, how to co-opt it? How to ruin it? How to how to confuse people? So that's why you have to have a sharp ideological understanding of who you face, who your enemies are, who your friends are, and not be afraid to push the correct and the and the right and the just line because it is a fight for justice. And there's no way it can stop if you're confident enough to do it. The people are looking for solutions. They're looking for solutions. They deserve solutions. Who's going to give it to them? It's up to us. Yes. So what I hear you saying, I'm going to wrap up, is that we need a system that is public, that it's not beholden to private interest. It's about making profit for a few. We need a system that covers everybody, cradle to grave. We need a system 
where people don't have to worry about how much they make to go to see the doctor, but can get their can get high quality care uh, free at the point of service. And that to get that system, we need to fight for it. Ideally, it would be the un the labor movement, but there are a lot of problems as you've talked about through this podcast with our labor movement. Where we so those who are in the rank and file and would like to see a stronger labor movement need to not despair but to fight for that. And you offered some strategies, building caucuses, labor, rank and file caucuses, dissident newsletters, things like that, um, educationals, town halls, things like that, to help people not only with single health payer health care, but many of the other issues important for us. Um, so. Yes, yes. Don't don't despair. I, I would say that it's yeah. not only the rank and file. There are there are some and and, and increasing yeah. many people in leadership who recognize that they that they need to move forward. Boy. They need that this the current system is just is killing people. People. And, and we have and we have and we're gonna have Ed, a couple of uh of organizers. They're gonna be from the UE at some time in the near future. Okay, on a separate podcast talking about how they have tried to build the, the have tried to build the the movement uh, for single payer healthcare and the labor movement, what have been what their experience has been, what what their victories and what their what their pitfalls have been, and uh, so we'll get some chance to hear some some more of that in a future podcast. Um, I thank you a lot, Ed. Uh, I have thank found you. your I have found your uh, ideas uh interesting and challenging and i hope other people have i hope you've inspired people to get moving <laughs> to get right. fight, to, to to uh to get and i know people are fighting already but to keep fight keep up the fight and um i'm uh hope everybody here will be so inspired by this podcast they'll look at our our links and our show notes and they'll join the next podcast uh, in, in, in ending, excuse me, in ending, I, I just forgot one thing. Tony Bazaki, who I worked with, he was the president of Oil Chemical, Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union. He would always say, and in, in what you're saying is people are fighting. But the one of the points is there's a big difference between, there's a chasm here. There's a big difference between being militant and being radical. There's a lot of people that run around and say, I'm a real militant, and and what do you say? Well, I'd like to raise the minimum wage from seven twenty-five to fifteen dollars, and that's a militant demand. But the real issue is you got to be radical. You have to go to the root of the problem, and that's what beginning the single payer does. And that you know that so labor has its roots in being radical because you know if you go through the history, people got killed. They they were tortured for organizing a union and this idea that somehow it's coming back today and we're going to let it happen is, is just wrong. You know, you can't, you can't do it. You've got to, and you can't do it by appealing to people's good intentions. You've got to get yourself organized, you know, or, organized and be yeah. radical. Okay. Exactly. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. You. Organize and be radical. Right. Okay.